0: been preaching through the gospel of John, just to give me a little more, less volume, please, just a little bit, I've been preaching through the gospel of John for the last six years, and we're up to a very crucial chapter, very crucial, very pivotal, it's crucial because it concerns your Salvation. It concerns trusting in Christ. It concerns redemption. It it concerns the atonement. It's about the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. No trusting in Christ. No redemption. No atonement. Without the resurrection, the crucified Christ would be dead his bones would still be in the grave, and he'd be decayed. When Christ rose from the dead, it was declared to the world, and not only the world, but Satan, that God accepted His Son's sacrifice. Sin for the believer has been atoned for, and Satan has been defeated. When Christ rose from the dead, dead. That was a proclamation to the world. God's eternal wrath against sinful man has been propitiated. That's a technical term, propitiation. It's a technical theological term. It just simply means satisfied. When Christ rose from the dead, when he suffered and died on the cross, and he rose from the dead, God's wrath against you and against me, against sin, was satisfied. Satisfied. without the resurrection there would be no Christianity Dr. William Lane Craig a philosopher and a theologian says without the belief in the resurrection the Christian faith could not have come into being the disciples would have become crushed and defeated men even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have silenced forever any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have been remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity, therefore, hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. No Christianity without the resurrection. There's more, but let's read our text. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to their homes. Let's pray. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, resurrect any dead unbelief in our lives to a living hope through the preaching of your word. Open our minds and hearts to see, understand, and apply the resurrection to our lives, that we may live victoriously, no matter what we go through, glorifying you and your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to tell you a story about Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great preacher in the 1800s. And he tells the story of the reformer, Martin Luther. And listen to this story. Martin Luther was a very cheerful man as a rule, but he had terrible fits of depression. He was at one time so depressed that his friends recommended him to go away for a change of air to see if he could get relief. He went away, but he came home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, his wise wife Kate was sitting there dressed in black and her children round about her all in black. Oh, oh, said Luther, who is dead? Why, said she, doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. Then he burst into a hearty laugh and said, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I have been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go and take off thy black. And Spurgeon goes on to say, If God be alive, why are we discouraged? If we have a God to look to, why are we cast down? Let us rejoice and be glad together, for God will do all that he has promised for this reason. The great reformer, Martin Luther, was rebuked from his wife. I know how that feels very much, and Brian knows how that feels too. He was rebuked by his wife. The psalmist David rebuked himself in Psalm 42, verse 11. He rebukes himself for not trusting in God, who is sovereign over all. And he says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I yet shall praise Him, my salvation and my God. We have no excuse not to trust in the risen Savior. None whatsoever. My proposition for this message is this. Do you believe the tomb is empty and Christ is risen? Now before you answer that, I want you to listen to the sermon. I want you to think a little. There's three points I want to bring to your attention. The first one is, has the stone been rolled away from your heart? Verses 1 and 2 again. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Christ was crucified, he died and was buried. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Now before I get into the text, if you remember the last time I spoke, I want to briefly speak about where Jesus was for three days between his death and his resurrection, which is is hotly debated. First, I want to say this. I don't believe for one moment that Jesus went to hell for three days and finished the atonement there, being tormented by the demons. This teaching is prevalent by the word of faith teachers. Every scripture every scripture in the Bible speaks of the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, not in hell. Yes. And also, if you remember, he told the repentant thief on the cross, today, Jesus is on the cross with the thieves, today you will be, will be in parable. In paradise, he told the repentant thief. Dr. Sproul says this. Another view is Jesus went to hell because the Apostles' Creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he arose again from the dead. Now, we don't say that in our Apostles' Creed, but there are some Apostles' Creed that have that. However, the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed did not contain the phrase until the middle of the 3rd century, Plus, as Dr. Sproul says, it's theologically suspect. In other words, it's not theologically that he went to hell for three days because there's really no place in scripture that says that. Everything, as I said before, when it comes to his death, was on the cross. It was a blood sacrifice. Another view is held by the Roman Catholic Church, which is they believe Jesus went into hell to free those in limbo from the Old Testament days. They believe he went there to continue the work of redemption, to set captives in hell free from their condition. Now, they and others use First Peter chapter 3, verses 18-20, for their take on where Jesus was for three days. Now, that would take me a whole sermon to unpack, because that's a very controversial uh, text, but very obscure, and I don't know why anybody would use that text To say Jesus went to hell for three days to suffer and die for our sins. But I think Dr. Sproul makes an argument which I believe is accurate. And I side with him on this. He said Jesus' divine nature and human nature were perfectly united and could not separate. So Jesus had a divine nature and a human nature. And at the incarnation were perfectly united, never to be separated. We know, we know that. That's what we believe. That's what Orthodox Christianity taught from day one. On the cross, the divine nature did not die because he's unchangeable. God cannot die. His human nature did die. We know that. So his divine nature and human nature were in the grave. His divine nature and human nature were in the grave. Okay? You follow me so far? However, his living soul of Christ went to heaven. Now, Christ, when he became in, also had a living soul, like we do. He had a spirit, like we do. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit here, we're talking about Christ's soul. So when his human nature was in hell, I mean, I'm sorry, in, in, in the tomb, it was it was united with his divine nature. When his soul went to heaven, His divine nature was with that too. So Spro goes on to say, he says, how do we know? Because Jesus said to the cross, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. We also know moments before he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we have every reason to believe that at the moment Jesus died, the divine nature remained united to his soul, which is in heaven, and to his body, which is in the tomb, waiting to be united at the moment of his resurrection, there are other views. But I saw it sprawl. So, where was Jesus in the three days? For the three days, well, his human nature was in the tomb. His with his divine nature, his divine nature with his soul was in heaven. Confusing? Okay. Let's let's move forward. That's what we believe Jesus was for the three days. Okay, his human nature was in the tomb, his divine nature was in, um, I'm sorry, his spirit, his soul was in heaven, but his divine nature was in both places because God is everywhere. Moving forward, so Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb very early. John says it was the first day of the week and it was still dark. Now, the first day of the week is what? Sunday. Sunday. That's the Jewish calendar. They didn't say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They said first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, so on and so forth. So Jesus was raised to life Sunday morning. And guess what? The church has been celebrating his resurrection ever since. Sunday is also referred to as the Lord's Day. Now, there's two things we need to to reconcile here. John says... It was still dark when Mary Magdalene got to the tomb, right? It says it was still dark. Mark says the sun had risen. Second thing is, John only mentions Mary Magdalene at the tomb, whereas the other Gospels mention other women along with Mary Magdalene at the tomb. So this, here's where uh, the critics will say, oh, they see there's contradictions in the Bible. But it's, it seems like a contradiction, but it's not. The gospel writers at times wrote different details of the same event. Illustration. For example, if you witnessed a car accident with another person, you might say, I saw this Nissan go out of control and crash into a pole. Right? The person that saw it with you might say, I saw a black Maxima crash into a fence. It sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. They both saw the same accident with different details. It was a black Nissan Maxima, which went out of control, that crashed into the pole, knocking it down and continued until it crashed into the fence where it stopped. So, they saw the same accident, but different details. And that's what I love about the Gospels. God didn't give us four exact Gospels. What good would that be? But he gave us a diamond. You know what a diamond is? It has different facets. You hold it this way and you see the beauty of the diamond. And then you turn it and you see the beauty in another ang- at another angle. And then you turn it and it's another beauty at the other angle. I mean, it's, that's what it is. That's what the gospel is. It's the, it's the same with the gospel. You see different details describing the same event, which makes the gospels clearer in their understanding. And that's why whenever anyone preaches... You have to look at the four Gospels. You can't just look at one Gospel because there's different details. It's the same events with different details. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John maintain the honesty and integrity of the Gospels. You see, they didn't edit the Gospels to force it to harmonize. So how do we reconcile Mark with John. Well, first, it's possible that Mary Magdalene set out with the other woman to anoint Jesus' body with spices. And Mary arrived there first while it was still dark. The others got there when the sun rose. I get up most days before the sun rises. I do. And it's called first light. And you see, on the horizon, you see a little bit of light. And then maybe a half hour later, I see the sun peeking over the horizon which is very beautiful it might take 30 minutes I don't know so Mary and the other woman they all started out Mary happened to get there first maybe a half hour before they did and it was dark and when the other woman arrived the sun was already peeking through no big contradiction no contradiction at all no big deal and as far as the other woman, John simply focuses on Mary Magdalene. I don't think John was denying that there were other women there because the second half of verse 2, John quotes Mary Magdalene as saying, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and who? We. Are we up there? Yeah. We. So, so obviously John mentions Mary Magdalene amongst the other women. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? She's a great woman. She really is. And next time I preach, I'm going to talk more about her. We know from all four Gospels that she was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and John tells us she was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. All four Gospels tells us that she was at the tomb. Both Mark and Luke tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, a lot of people like to say Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but there's nothing in Scripture that says Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. They were thinking about the other Mary. Mark and Luke also tell us that she, along with other women, followed Jesus, ministered, and provided for Jesus out of their own means, which may indicate that she was a woman of wealth. Okay, I'm just giving you a little background of Mary Magdalene. In short, Mary Magdalene was a God-fearing, God-loving, even though her faith was weak concerning the resurrection, which we will see in a few minutes. So let's see what happened to Mary Magdalene. As I said before, she and the other woman set out early Sunday morning. And these women wanted to anoint Jesus' body. Now if you recall the last time I spoke, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus already anointed the body. But they may have not finished. Because if you remember, Sabbath was approaching and they were rushing. So they may not have finished it. Or... That could be one reason why they want to go and anoint Jesus' body or they just wanted to add more. That's not the point. In any event, Mary gets to the tomb first and sees how the stone is rolled away. I mean, she sees this big, huge stone rolled away. Nobody, not one man could roll this stone away. It was so big and so heavy. By the way, the stone was rolled away. You know why? Not to let Jesus out but to let the disciples in. Jesus, now in his glorified state, went right through the stone. He didn't need the stone to get out of the tomb. Did Mary just see the stone rolled away? Or even though John doesn't say it, did Mary actually look into the tomb and see it empty? Did she just see the stone rolled away? Or did she actually look in the tomb? We don't know. But whatever it is, Here's the point. Mary Magdalene didn't understand that Christ had to rise from the dead. That's the point here. And a lack of understanding of the resurrection led her to tell Peter and John that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Because she didn't understand yet that Christ had to rise from the dead, she believed grave robbers came and took the body of Jesus, which was very common in that day. Mary's heart was still in darkness concerning Christ's death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. She was a believer, yes. A chosen and elected saint, yes. But she still cannot connect the dots of Jesus' prediction concerning his death and resurrection. She had darkness shrouding her understanding. Dr. D.A. Carson says, The darkness of the hour is the perfect counterpart to the darkness that still shrouds Mary's understanding. As far as Mary, the stone was still at the entrance of her heart and caused darkness. Something was blocking her understanding that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. How many many times did Jesus tell his disciples the Son of Man is going to be crucified, and on the third day he was going to rise from the dead. How many times did he tell his disciples that? Many times. If you read through the gospel, he told them many times. I don't know the exact count, but it was a lot of times. So it wasn't because of a lack of information on the death and resurrection of Christ, but a slow to believe all that the prophets and the Christ himself said. Mary Magdalene still saw Jesus dead. She still saw him dead. And figuratively, it was as if the stone was in front of the mouth of the cave and as if Jesus was still there dead. It would have been the same thing because she did not understand Christ had to rise from the dead. But that was going to change very soon. As the rectified resident Christ was going to roll away the stone of her heart, and let his light shine and dispel that darkness. We'll see that the next time. Thank you. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Mary, without a doubt, was certainly a follower of Jesus Christ. But there was still darkness that needed to be dispelled. Not only did Mary need Christ's light to believe that Christ rose from the dead, all the disciples needed Jesus to roll away the stone from their hearts so the light of Christ could dispel the darkness that shrouded their understanding concerning the resurrection. So point one, let's get into some application here. Has a stone been rolled away from your heart? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth... That Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if this is your confession, Jesus is Lord, and you believe God raised him from the dead because the resurrection validated Christ's ministry and proves God accepted his sacrifice, also, there is no salvation without the resurrection. If you believe that from the depths of your heart, then the stone has been rolled away from your heart. Now I'm going to ask you another question. As a Christian, has the stone been rolled away from your heart? The stone that blocked the light of the glorious gospel has been rolled away from your heart if you're a believer. And it, his light shines in your heart now. We're saved. But sometimes we can be slow to believe, can't we? There are areas in our understanding of Scripture that darkness still shrouds our understanding. Since 1978, when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, there were teachings in the Bible I didn't understand. But as I studied the Bible, went to Bible studies, listened to teachings from sound preachers and teachers, many things I did not understand, guess what? I began to understand them. The darkness was lifted light was shining into my heart and I, I understood certain things I remember understanding certain doctrines of the Bible that I had trouble with I rejoiced when I began to understand it and the light shone into my heart and it was such a pleasure and a joy to understand more of the scriptures and more of Christ Yes, we have good Christian friends we're reformed in this church this is a reformed church you're either Reformed or you're Arminian in, in the Church of Jesus Christ. You know, we're not, we're united, but we're, we have different doctrinal differences. But we're Reformed. I was once an Arminian, but now I'm a Reformed uh, Christian. Anyway, we had these good Christian friends that believed you choose God. You choose God. God's salvation goes into effect if you accept Jesus Christ into your heart. In other words, God is really not in control of your salvation; you are. God is just standing by and prompting us to accept Him, and we choose. But is that what the Scripture teach? We don't believe here at Sonship; they do. We believe God chooses a sinner for salvation, regenerates him or her, and then the person has the will to cry out in repentance and faith, and not until. Well, one day, we had our friends over for dinner, and we started talking about God's election of lost sinners, and they were were amazed that as Christians we could believe such a doctrine. A few days later, the wife called me up and said, I looked into the Bible and I read a bunch of passages that say, Whosoever wills may come. And I told her yes. But it, does, it doesn't say who the so who the whosoever will is. It doesn't say that. And I believe when you look at all of scripture, all of scripture, you will find that the whosoever will is God's elect. So I offered a book to the husband from Dr. Sproul called chosen by God, which he became very irate with me. and I'm not allowed to use the words he said to me on this pulpit. He was extremely mad, but it didn't really come between our friendship. But it was a little strange, I have to say. That was about 15 years ago. About 5 years ago, I saw his wife in the supermarket. And we were saying hi and catching up, when all of a sudden... Her eyes got so bright and big. I almost ran out of the supermarket. She got real bright and big. She said, "John, now I understand predestination." She began to tell me that her and her husband started attending a new church. I know. I know the church. It's in Tottenville, and and and, and he was a young pastor. He used to be. He used to be part of Salem Evangelical Church when he started a new church, and he was reformed, and he was a great teacher. And and as he taught the scriptures, it was the scriptures. It wasn't man's opinion. It was the scriptures. As he taught the scriptures, her eyes were open. The stone was rolled away. The darkness was lifted. And we rejoiced in the supermarket together. I I was overwhelmed. I didn't have to sit there and fight with her. The scriptures do the talking. Remember, let the fingers do the walking and the other pages? Let the scriptures do the talking. And we all have, we may all have areas in our hearts concerning non essential teachings that still, darkness still shrouds our understanding in these things. And I say non essentials, I'm speaking about teachings in the Bible that we can be genuinely saved but not understand certain doctrines. Nobody has. Not one Christian has the whole corner of the truth when it comes to the non-essentials. The essentials, you better have the truth because then you're not a Christian. Anything, uh, it doesn't mean the non-essentials are not important. It's, It's important. Anything that is written in the Bible is important. Why? Because God said it. And it will affect our growth negatively if we misinterpret misapply it, or positively if we understand it and appropriately apply it. Essential doctrines like justification by faith alone and Christ's divinity must be believed that a person isn't saved. So we're not talking about the essentials. We're talking about the non-essentials. Sometimes, let's talk about non essential like modes of baptism, gifts of the Spirit those need to be learned and practiced but yet the church differs on that sometimes a christian has a lack of understanding of certain doctrines of the bible and only god can bring light to those dark areas so when you come to faith in christ you're not always, you, you don't always have this clear understanding about every doctrine of the bible because if you did guess what you don't need bible study you don't need to read your bible anymore no we need to continuously grow and let god dispel the darkness that shrouds our understanding of anything in the Bible. This is one of the reasons why we offer offer Bible study, and we encourage you to go. Adult Bible study, men's discipleship, women's Bible study. God, by His Spirit and His Word, lets lets His light shine in our hearts, dispelling darkness. Bible study, whether corporate or personal, is vital for Christian growth. The more we read, study and meditate on God's word, the more the stones are rolled away from our minds and hearts and the light of Christ is let in. I meet many Christians, many times, that their lack of understanding of certain doctrines of the Bible is because they refuse to abandon bad teachings they received as a Christian. And if you refuse to do that, obviously God can't shine His light in those dark areas. Certain doctrines that i held on to so long until I said God show me what what you mean and he did but if you're holding on to it so tightly and say well I when I first got saved this is what they taught me what you learned all the time doesn't necessarily mean it was true and I had to take a look at quite a different few teachings to understand that hey maybe I'm not understanding these certain doctrines the way I think I do Food for thought. Point one, the soul, the stone has been rolled away from your heart. Point two, are your grave clothes left behind? Let's read verses three and seven. Two, three two, seven. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <clears throat> And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Peter... I'm sorry, I lost my place over here. Okay, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Mary Magdalene told the disciples, Peter and John, when, they told, when she told the disciples, Peter and John immediately started running to the tomb. And John outruns Peter, probably because John was younger. And he gets to the tomb first. He stoops and looks in. He stoops down and looks in, because the tombs were, you know, the entrance of the tombs back then were probably very low. So he stoops and looks in. He didn't go in. Then Peter gets to the tomb and he runs right in. Peter was living up to his impetuous character. You know? You know, John stops, he's very cautious, looks in, maybe fear would grip in his heart, who knows? Peter just goes right into the tomb. And that's impetuous Peter, right? Oh Lord, I'll never deny you. He denied him three times. I mean that was Peter. That was Peter. But I love Peter. I love that he ran right into the tomb. You know, he denied him three times. He, he, he didn't let it get to him where he committed suicide like Judas. <laughs> you know? He he had a heart of repentance, Peter. And he ran right into the tomb. Now this is interesting. This is very interesting. John makes a point of telling his readers that they saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which was on Jesus' head, folded up and separate from the rest of the linen cloths. why would John say that what's the point of saying yeah I saw the linen cloth and the, the, the face napkin or the face cloth folded up and rolled in a separate place well I think was John was showing us two things number one he was saying Jesus' body was not stolen this was a popular concern in antiquity Grave robbers would steal the body from the grave, especially if the dead were wealthy. They would steal the linen and spices, which were very valuable. So that's why they wanted to take the body. Plus, but, but the linen cloths were left behind. Okay, now I want you to follow me. Plus, the face napkin was either folded or rolled up in a place by itself. So, the linen cloths were left behind and the face napkin was neatly folded up and in a place by itself. Any grave robber in his right mind would not have left the linens and spices and took time to fold up or roll up the face cloth. When we had our house robbed, they didn't take time. We had a flower box and it just where the window was, it was on the floor, the flowers were all over the place. They went in, robbed what they had a rob, came back, went out and took off. They didn't stop, close the window, get the flower box, put the dirt back in, you know, maybe water it a little bit. I mean, they didn't do that. Grave robbers are not going to do that. And, and the reason why we're making a big point about grave robbers because skeptics and critics will still say that to this day. So John is making a point that he's an eyewitness that this is not what happened. They would have taken the whole body and grave courts and got out of there as fast as they could because another reason is if they got caught There was a death penalty attached to that. So a grave robber is not going to sit around and fiddle around with the grave clothes. Plus, there were gods there. When the gods told the chief priests what happened, they told the gods to tell the people the disciples stole the body. Okay, so John is saying even though there were widespread rumors. That Jesus' body was stolen, I'm a witness that Jesus wasn't stolen. There were no grave robbers here. And the second thing, Jesus truly rose from the dead. He truly rose from the dead. So John is saying, the body wasn't stolen, Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. By the fact that he wasn't stolen, the tomb is empty, and the way the linens were situated. In other words, Jesus' body passed right through the linens. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he told the men, unbind him and let him go. You see, Lazarus had to be unbound. He didn't have a glorified body, he had a human body. Did Jesus put the life back into him? He had to be. Unbound, Jesus passed right through the clothes. As the time he passed through the door, <coughs> excuse me, when his disciples were hiding behind closed door, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood right before them. Are your grave clothes left behind? You have no business to live life as a believer with grave clothes on. The only people who live with grave clothes on are unbelievers. Now, I'm not talking about this figuratively, obviously. I'm sorry, I am talking about this figuratively. (laughs) Not literally. (laughs) Ephesians 2. Let's turn to that. Verses 1 through 6. And you were dead. Okay, dead. Dead. Not alive, not half dead. You were dead. You know what that means? Dead. (laughs) If they stuck you, you wouldn't feel anything. You, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And when nature... When you were born again and trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, you went right through your grave clothes, figuratively. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. We passed through the grave clothes. Behold, the new has come. Christ took off your grave clothes of sin and clothed you with a newness of life. And you know what that newness of life is? Eternal life, his righteousness, is now clothing you, not grave clothes. Jesus said in John 5.25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death out of the grave grave clothes to life. Whereas sin describes the old life, grave clothes, Christ's righteousness describes the new life. Pastor Brian preached last week on Romans. Actually, the last few weeks, the last few times he spoke. He gave us a clear understanding of how Christ took our sins by His death and resurrection and worked in us by His Spirit His redemption in the first 11 chapters of Romans. As you go through the first 11 chapters of Romans, that's what it's basically about. And in light of that, he said... We are to live out that redemption in everyday life, especially towards each other. And that's the last five chapters. In other words, we are to live out what Christ has worked in us in gratitude, in thanksgiving. We don't live with grave clothes anymore. No more. We used to have a Bible study for years in our home. And a lot of people used to attend. And I don't remember what it was what I was speaking on, but the Bible studies, I always spoke an, an hour. It was very long-winded like I am now. <laughs> but I would speak about an hour on a Bible study. And it could have been about forgiveness or how we are to love each other. One of those topics. And after speaking and pouring my heart out for an hour, as soon as the Bible study ended, I looked in the kitchen. My wife had every, all the dessert and the coffee set up. We, you know and I looked in the kitchen as soon as I said amen and the people got up to walk in the kitchen to have refreshments I see these two women arguing with each other and I said to myself did they not hear what I said did I not hear what the Bible is just teaching about love and forgiveness they had even though they were saved they were walking around with grave clothes on you're a Christian, your grave clothes have been left behind concerning your justification. That's your salvation. But are your grave clothes left behind concerning your sanctification? Your day-to-day living out your salvation, becoming more and more Christ-like. I'm not suggesting... Now that you are a Christian, you sanctify yourself. In other words, God saved you. And now the burden is on you to keep those grave clothes off and keep them off. No. But again, as Pastor Brian preached last week, we now live in the light of what Christ has done. His imputed righteousness to us. Jerry, Dr. Jerry Bridges says it like this. He said, Believers need the gospel to remind them that our standing with God is not based on our own obedience, but on the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ. Otherwise, the pursuit of holiness can be performance driven. That is, if I'm good, God will bless me. Christ does the work of salvation, Christ does the work of sanctification. And even though sanctification is primarily a work of God, we cooperate with Him. We don't cooperate in salvation. The only thing we do is when God gives us that new heart, as as, as Ezekiel says, when God causes us to be born again He regenerates, we respond with faith and repentance. But now the sanctification comes, primarily it's the work of God in your heart. a work of grace in your heart but we cooperate with God in our sanctification stripping ourselves more and more of our putrid grave clothes and growing in righteousness and holiness and that comes we need to cooperate with God in that in other words you can slow down your sanctification you can by disobedience we don't want to do that Are your grave clothes left behind or are you still wearing them? Point three. Do you see Jesus' tomb empty? You see his tomb empty? Verses 9 and 10. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. One of the things students learn, I've learned, and Pastor Brian learned, is a thing called hermeneutics. It's not a technical term. It's the art and science of interpretation. It's to look. One of the things you learn is look for a repetition of words. Right? If you're looking at a text, you look at a repetition of words because if a word is repeated more than once, it's 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 more than likely that the author is trying to get your attention about something now John uses the word tomb seven times seven times in ten verses and I think John uses the word seven times to stress a point point. and you know what that point is that although a tomb is a place to hold the dead right that's what a tomb is this particular tomb is empty It could not keep Jesus dead. John finally went into the tomb. And verse 8 tells us he saw and he believed. Now, verses 5, 6, and 8 use the word saw. Look. And I want you to see the progression here. This is important. Pastor Stephen Cole from Dallas Theological Seminary gives us insight as to the three uses of the word and shows us the progression. He says, John goes into more detail concerning the grave clothes than any other gospels do. In telling the story, John uses three different Greek words meaning to see. When John first arrived at the tomb, he stooped in and looked and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. That's in verse 5. He uses the common Greek word that suggests nothing more than sight. So what he's saying is, John just looked in and saw. But when Peter got there, he entered the tomb and saw, he also saw, the linen wrappings. That's in verse 6. Here the Greek word has the nuance of looking carefully or examining something. We get our word theater from it. Audiences at a theater watch carefully so as not to miss any part of the play. So, Peter looked in and carefully observed. You know, when we go, when we watch TV, my wife is much more observant. When we go to a play, she likes to know every detail that's going on. I fall asleep. She looks and observes. Okay. So John looked in; he just saw. Peter looked in and he observed. He was looking at the the empty tomb. He was looking at the, the clothes, the, the wrappings, uh, the, the linen cloths, the face cloth. Okay. Finally, this is the third time he uses saw. Finally, John went in, he saw and believed. That's verse 8. Here John uses a word that means to see with understanding. So here's what happened. John walked in, he just looked. Peter looked in, he looked and observed. He didn't come to any conclusion. He observed all the stuff. John looked in, when he went in, he saw, he believed. He believed. John not only saw the tomb empty, but he saw that Jesus is alive. Praise God. Are you dead Amen. or alive? Amen. Amen! Jesus is alive! Amen. He's alive! He's resurrected. He's living in you. Amen. Many of us have come from religious backgrounds, mainly Catholicism. We learned about the empty tomb. We learned that Jesus rose from the dead, but this, A lot of that was an intellectual assent we believed in the historical thing because that's what we were taught but it wasn't a conversion of any sort but it wasn't until God opened the eyes of our heart rolled away the stone and dispelled the darkness that we saw with with hard understanding that Christ is alive he's alive are you looking through the eyes of faith that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive is this just for the unbeliever so his eyes can be opened that Christ is alive. I mean, that is essential for, for salvation and the resurrection, of course. But what about you, the believer? I'm assuming most of you here are believers. But what about you, the believer? Why do many of you live as though Jesus is not alive? I mean, you came to faith in Christ, you believed Him, you were justified by His faith, by faith and grace alone, but you still live like Jesus is dead. If you're a Christian, you not only believe that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive, you have the same power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Now, I don't know if you get what I just said. I mean you have the same resurrection power living within you that raised Christ from the dead. And yet some of us live as if Christ is dead. We're saved, but when it comes to living out our day-to-day living, Christ is still in the tomb, the stone is still rolled in front of it. Two scriptures I want to bring to your attention. Concerning resurrection power, Romans 8 1. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. God's power raised Christ out of death to life. The same power raised you back to life and gives you the power to not live in the flesh but in the spirit where you don't fulfill the lustful cravings anymore. We need to grow in this. We need to grow in this. And the second scripture is Ephesians 1 verses 19 to 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? towards you as the believer who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places you see that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is right now at work in you but I don't feel it you don't have to feel it, it's a life of faith Listen, God said we walk by faith, not by sight, not by feeling, not by emotion, not by anything, but by what God said in His Word. So many Christians are like the man who walks into a dark room and can't see anything, so he stumbles around and stubs his toe. The room has a lamp, but he didn't turn on the lamp. Many of you need to turn on the resurrection power. And what I mean turn on, I don't mean something you do. Just realize it's there. And walk by faith in the power and the, of Christ. How? Once again, by faith. Christianity is lived by faith. By faith, live life in the light of the empty tomb. By faith, live life in the power of the resurrection. Paul told the Philippian church... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word strengthen comes from a Greek word which means to cause someone to have the ability or to do or to experience something. To make someone able, to give capability, to to enable, to strengthen, to empower. You can live life in the power of the resurrection because Christ empowers you to Whatever he asks you to do, you can do it because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're coming, bear with me, I know this is a little long way, I only get to preach once a month, so sometimes I have to put it all together. Another interesting verse is verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Now, John believed, we, we believe that John believed at that point, that Christ was rose, rose from the dead, but he still didn't understand the scripture. John believed, but along with Peter and the other disciples, still didn't understand what it meant that Christ had to rise from the dead and Dr. Leon Morris he really really nails it he says it's clear from the New Testament that the early Christians saw the resurrection as foretold in the Old Testament but this verse shows plainly that it was belief in the resurrection that came first in other words they saw the resurrection first before they understood the scripture the believers did not manufacture a resurrection to agree with their interpretation of prophecy they were first convinced that Christ was risen Then they came to see the fuller meaning in certain Old Testament passages. In other words, John, Peter, and the others actually saw the tomb empty and the resurrected Christ and believed before they actually understood what the scripture said about it. So, no one could accuse them of understanding the scripture and somehow fabricate a resurrection to coincide with scripture. I mean, when you read the Gospels, God covers every angle to show you that this is real. Nobody can make this stuff up. But the time was coming that that was going to change. Dr. Carson says, by the time John wrote, that was no longer the case. The church had worked out the detailed understanding of the Old Testament by which to understand and explain the life, ministry, and death and resurrection of the Lord. I have another verse of scripture, I'm not going to read it, but if you read it, uh, when you go home, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 you could see that not only now did they understand the scriptures that Christ had arise from the dead but they preached it they preached it so they saw the resurrection, they still didn't understand the scriptures, by the time it was all said and done the Holy Spirit came now they understood the scriptures and now they began to preach it and after all this They went home. Which sets the stage for the next time I preach. Peter and John left. But Mary stayed behind where she would be the first to see the resurrection. The resurrected Christ. And I love that story. You can believe in the resurrection. You can believe in it. Why? Because there's much evidence. First evidence. An empty tomb. The grave of of Muhammad. The founder of Islam. He's in a mosque in Medina, Saudi Arabia. Millions of Muslims visit every year during the annual hajj, pilgrimage to Mecca and other Muslims' holy sites. He occupies this tomb. The body of Buddha, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, for the lack of sake of time. Uh, The founder of Buddhism was cremated and his ashes and other relics were said to have been placed in a few temples or in mud-like structures called stupas. He's still in his grave. Well, not in his grave, but he's his ashes. The grave of Confucius, founder of Confucianism, is in the home of Kuefa in, in China. He lies buried among with ten, along with ten, tens of thousands of his descendants. Th- these men, these so-called great religious men, are all in their tombs. The tomb in which Jesus, the founder of the Christian faith, was buried in, located in Jerusalem, his tomb is empty. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His angelic testimony, the angel told the woman who, you were, who, who were looking for Jesus, he has risen. Prophecy from David, Isaiah, and Jesus himself. In the Old Testament, it prophesied that Jesus Christ is going to rise from the dead. And in fact, the disciples went from unbelief To believing in how many of them died for that belief. No one in their right mind would die for a lie. There's much more, but there's not enough time to elaborate on this. So let me conclude here by recapping my points. Has the stone been rolled away from your heart? Now I want you to take this seriously. Because you could say, I'm saved, I know it. Yeah, so I have a few faults and weaknesses. No, that's not the right attitude. We need to know that we need to love God with all our heart as best as we can. But there are areas in our hearts that need light. And the only way to get that light is if the stone is rolled away from your heart. Is darkness concerning Christ's death and resurrection dispelled? Has the word tonight, not John Verde's preaching, has the word of God, the text that we read, has that pierced your heart? I'm not talking to you about my opinions. I'm talking to you about the Word of God. If it has, and without a doubt you believe, ask God through His Son to forgive you. Begin to trust and obey Him. And if you're already a Christian, allow God to remove any stones that block the entrance of your heart so more light of Christ can dispel the other dark areas of your life. Are your grave clothes left behind? If you trusted in Christ, you've been raised to life, and the grave clothes are left behind. Don't walk with them on anymore. And do you see Jesus is too empty? Do you? If you do, live like it. He's alive. Because he lives. You can face today, tomorrow, and guess what? You can stare the past in the face and say, I'm forgiven. Praise God. You're forgiven. Don't bring up my sins anymore. I'm forgiven. Hallelujah. Because he lives in you, you now have the power of a sinner and can live righteously for him. And I'll conclude with this chorus of a hymn written by Bill and Gloria Gaither. And it says it all. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Do you want to sing it? Yes. 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 What, do you know that song? Come on, let's sing it. Let me pray. Father, enlighten us, Father, as we conclude here. Let your people know that the stone has been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive. Amen. Stand to your feet.